we'll be in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9 this week. And just to give you a heads up of what's on the, on the uh, coming up, the trajectory, is that uh, I'll, I'll do one more sermon next week on, on, in Luke. And then we're going to take a little pause just to get a little break. We've been in Luke a long time. Feels like a, feels like a forever journey, right? And, uh, but we've been in Luke a long time. So we're going to take a little pause. And Shane and I are going to be working for uh, about six weeks and doing a series on what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is that good news? Uh, and hitting some of the big components of the gospel. And so we'll be looking at, at big chunks of scripture throughout the whole Bible and honing in on what does it mean when we say we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I encourage you, I want you, I want you to be part of that series. I want you to watch online if you're, you're at home. I want you to be here for that because it's going to be an important series because when we say we believe in the gospel and we want to share the gospel with people, we want to know what to say. And I think the Bible says that very clearly what we should be saying. So uh, I want you to be excited about that series. It's going to be a great series. We're excited about that. We want to know what is this good news that we say we believe in. So we'll be doing that uh, for, for a couple weeks. And, uh, and so I hope you tune into that series and are part of that. But we have two more sermons to go in the book of Luke. And then, uh, and then we'll go into that series. So we're in Luke 13, 1 through 9. I'll read it for us. And then I'll, I'll pray. And we'll jump right in. It says this, 13, verse 1. There was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Of those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, unless you repent. You all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in a vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I found none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Let's pray. God, this is your word. And your word is good. And we as your people need your word. Uh, help us by your spirit working in us. Convict us of sin. Draw us to faith and repentance. And let, let us be people of faith and repentance. In a beautiful, a glorious, honorable, majestic name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I know it may feel like an, an eternity ago. But if you remember back in March, which is when we weren't meeting. Uh, this is when it was just a, a, you know, a couple sound guys and, and the elders in, in the bubble, uh, back in the bubble days, right? Uh, we had a panel discussion. Everybody remember that? Kinda, we had a panel discussion. Shane was on there as well. And uh, we discussed some big, big ticket items about this pandemic, how we're to think about that. And one of the big questions that stood out to me in that panel discussion, the one, one of the questions that came through, is somebody asked, is this pandemic a judgment from God? It was a question that came up. Is this pandemic a judgment from God? And so, uh, just so you know, throughout the course of human history, this question is not new. Anytime that there's a big, huge tragedy, or there's a big massacre, or there's a big pandemic or something like this, is that this question is always asked. Is this God's response to wickedness and sin? You know, and you'll see some of the big televangelists who will come on, and they'll start making big speculations and assertions about things. Well, Hurricane Katrina was God's judgment on America. 
Well, the earthquake in Haiti was God's judgment on Haitians for selling their souls to the devil. You know, when tragedies happen, people come out of the woodwork to make speculations about what God's doing behind it. I don't know why we jump off into those things really quickly. I think it could be dangerous. And if you remember, because I know what I said in that panel discussion was incredibly impactful to you and changed your life. I know that. I know you remember exactly what I said and you wrote it down in your journal. But actually what I said was, I referred to Luke 13, 1 through 9, if you remember correctly. I referred to here is that Jesus is presented with a very similar scenario about tragedy. And he doesn't pull the trigger and say, well, here's what God's doing behind it. He actually doesn't do that. He actually zooms out and says, let's, let's have a bigger picture of what, what it means for this world to be broken. What, what tragedy means, what massacres mean, what pandemics mean. He calls his disciples to zoom out and see, that's, you're not asking the right questions. You're not asking the right questions. And so in today's text, I hope we can get some further, further clarification on the purposes of COVID. But ultimately, ultimately, and I'll go ahead and put the cards on the table for you. Ultimately, I hope we can see that in the midst of disasters and even a pandemic, that God is using these things as instruments to prod us to respond in faith and particularly repentance. So let's consider, I want to consider two points today as we look at 13, 1 through 9. First point is this, God's impartial justice. God's impartial justice. Jesus urges He uses tragedy to urge us to repent in light of impending judgment. I don't know if uh, you you are all probably aware of the word karma, things like that. You know, some of you may even use it, karma. Oh, they had it coming to them, right? Oh, what goes around comes around. Oh, it was going to happen someday, and they got what they deserved, right? That's karma for you. Many people in the world think that this is how the world actually works, right? And even, unfortunately, some people in the church think this is how the world works, right? Karma, what goes around comes around, right? You do bad, you get bad. You do good, you get good, right? And uh, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, fortunately for us, Jesus is debunking this very idea of karma. When he talks about in 13, 1 through 9, he's taking off the table any idea that the world works through karma. Bad comes to bad, good comes to good. That's not how the world works. He's debunking this idea of karma today. He teaches people that what they should really be concerned about is not karma and why bad things happen to people. Ultimately, he wants them to see that whatever happens, you should be drawn to repentance in light of it. So let's look at this, verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 13. Because we, we talked about 1249 through 59 last week and Shane looked at verse 35, and we talked about last week how uh, this is all set in an, a big word, eschatological framework, basically a future-oriented, looking at the future, what God's going to do in the future. And so Jesus is not changing direction here in chapter 13, verse 1. Verse 1 is actually meant us to connect it back to 1235 through 59. So Jesus is continuing this idea of getting yourself ready for the coming judgment. So we talked about last week, settle your accounts, not necessarily with your accusers or your enemies. Settle your accounts with God. And where it's going to start with is this. How do you settle your accounts with God? By repentance. Starting with repentance. And so 13.1 is, is kind of connecting the section that we covered last week in this section together. Is that ultimately to get yourself right with God, you've got to start with repentance. 
And so here's what happened. Here, here, here's a story in 13, 1 through 5, is that we have a story kind of unlike any other. These crowds come to Jesus, and they relay a story to him uh, about Pilate and the Galileans. And it's almost presented to him as, okay, what's Jesus going to react? How, how's he going to react to this scenario that's just happened? What, what, what's he going to say? How's he going to explain this? Right? It feels like that's, that's what's kind of happening here. But they relate to him, look, um, you know, you've probably heard this about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Uh, what we understand from the scenario is that there were some Galileans who were offering sacrifices uh, in the temple, and Pilate came in there, and he slaughtered them on the, on the altar, basically. And the blood of the Galileans was mixed with the sacrifices that uh, the Galileans were offering. So one author says it like this, is that as the Galileans were offering sacrifices, Pilate came in and he offered his own sacrifices, basically people's lives. And so they're bringing this situation, this massacre done by a bloodthirsty tyrant, uh, they're bringing it to Jesus to kind of see how he's going to react to this. He's like, man, this is an evil that has been done. But Jesus' question and response is going at an underlying assumption that the people in the crowds have. Listen to what he says. Again, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? His question is probing an underlying assumption in the crowds. Basically, they got what they deserved, those dirty Galileans. They got what they deserved. Man, it was coming one day. They were evil. They were uh, uh, sinister. They were dirty. They were nasty. They got what they they got what they had coming. That's the underlying assumption from the crowds. It's like, hey, they, they deserve this thing. And Jesus is like, do you really think that this thing happened to them because they were worse sinners? You really that's that's really how you think, right? That this tragedy is the consequence of their sin. And so he goes on to say, no way, no way. What's he think like that? That that. One person is more condemned or deserving of, of this tragedy than anyone else. That, that everyone is actually equally, because of their sin, condemned before a righteous and holy God. That this tragedy to the Galileans is not due to their sinful lifestyle. And so Jesus goes on to explain it. He goes on to actually give another illustration. He says, okay, you give me the Galilean one, let me give you one. How about that situation in Jerusalem when the Tower of Siloam fell on 18 people and killed them? Do you think that those Jerusalemites were worse? Worse than anybody else? That's why the tower fell on them? So you get two types of tragedies here. Tragedies that we experience in our own world, right? A tragedy that's done by a bloodthirsty tyrant who kills people just with evil intent and motive. And then you get a tower that falls on people. Kind of a random natural disaster. You know, we can think of modern-day examples of this. You know, you have disasters and tragedies like, like hurricanes, you know, that, that leave people homeless and even kill people. But then you have tragedies and disasters like what Hitler did in the Third Reich, tragedies and disasters done by evil men. And so those are, Jesus is, is given two different types of tragedies here says, okay, do you think that any of these people are worse and that's why they deserve what happened to them? You think that's the case? It's not. And Jesus' response doesn't change whether it's the Jerusalemites or the Galileans. And so to, 
to give you a technical word, and I'll, I'll explain it. What the people are thinking is that they're working under this called retribution principle. Don't worry, big word, but I'll, 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 I'll explain it. Retribution principle. And it's basically like the karma thing, is that if you're bad, something bad is going to happen to you. That's retribution. If you're good, you do something good, something good is going to happen to you. If a bad thing happens to you, it's because you are bad. Right? That's the retribution principle. And we've already seen this already in the scriptures already. It's already come about. Anybody remember Job's story? So Job's going through the suffering and this pain and the tragedy, and he doesn't know why. He doesn't know why. You know, the, uh, the heavenly council and the Lord, they know why. You know, uh, Satan and all that story, the first two chapters of Job, they know why. But Job doesn't know why. And so then you get Job's three friends. Aren't they great friends in that story? They come, let's, Job, we're going to help you out. We're going to explain why you're going through all this suffering. And so one of his friends comes up like, Job, you know why you're suffering? Because you are a wicked person. You are wicked. You have done wicked things. You have done bad things. And this is why, this is why you are going through everything that you're going through. That's the retribution principle. You do bad, you get bad, Job. And ultimately at the end of Job, God's like, that's not how I work. That's not how I work. We get a second story like this in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 9, you remember that uh, a man who's born blind from birth uh, is on the scene, and, and he comes forward, and the disciples have a question. They have a question. So they see this man born blind, and they say, okay, who sinned? Did this man sin, or did his parents sin for him to be born blind? That's a retribution principle, right? Somebody had to do something wrong for him to ha- be blind, right? Who, who was it? Who was it? And you know what Jesus says? Oh, this is beautiful. Listen in John chapter 9, verse 19. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There's no retribution principle here, folks. It's not how God works. Bad to bad, good to good. That's not how it works. Warren Wiersbe tells this great story of, uh, many of you may already know, John Milton. He was an English poet, and he was part of the Puritans who, who helped behead one of the kings. And um, John Milton was approached by Charles II, who was the son of the beheaded king. And Charles II came to uh, the blind, uh, uh, blind poet, and he said this to John Milton. Your blindness, John Milton, is a judgment from God for the part you took against my father. You know what John Milton responded back to him? It's so good. Listen to this. He said, okay, if I have lost my sight through God's judgment, what can you say of your father who lost his head? Boom, right? Drop the hammer and the microphone with it, right? And so John Milton's going at that idea of like, hey, this is, this is not how the world works, right? Charles Talbert says it really well is that tragedy is not the sign of of sinfulness, just as absence of tragedy is not the sign of righteousness, right? And so Jesus is debunking all this. He says, this is not how the world works. This is not how God works. He doesn't do that. It's not a retribution principle. So you're asking the wrong question. You need to zoom back and see what tragedy is being used for. It's an instrument being used by God to basically get a response from the people who see it. Jesus wants them to zoom out. 
He doesn't want them to ask the why question. Why is this happening? He wants them to ask the question, what do I do now with this? What do I do now having seen this tragedy in Jerusalem and towards the Galileans? Jesus is saying that it's being used as an instrument to warn people of God's justice. Do you see what happened to the Galileans? Do you see this? He says, if you don't repent, it will be worse for you. Take this as a sign, a warning, that if you don't repent of your sin and your sinful lifestyle, it will be even worse for you. So he's using these tragedies to point them towards ultimate judgment. Say, look at these things and look forward. Look to see that if you don't repent now in this life, it will be worse for you. And ultimately, he's saying that it's for all people. You see the emphasis of all in in these five verses? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. God's judgment is universal. God doesn't care about race. God God doesn't care about gender. God doesn't care about economic status, nor your religious status of your family, any of those things. He said every person will stand account before a holy God on judgment day. And unless one repents, they too will all end up in hell eternally. And so what are are some applications that we can get from this? What do we take from Jesus' statements here? Well, church, let's just be honest with ourselves for a second. Sometimes, we operate out of the retribution principle. You've got to pay the dirt. Those dirty blanks. Blank, I mean, insert a person's name here. Blank. They deserve it. They got what they had coming to them. Right? They should have gotten worse. You know, this was brought to my own attention in a, in a just stunning manner. Uh, me, and, me and Michael Paul uh, went to Angola Prison, where he's been working on, on Angola Prison's death row for, for many years, discipling guys there. And he brought me with him one time and where we got to meet some of the death row inmates. And right there, my utter uh, ignorance and sin was exposed to me. Where I thought, those death row inmates, they got what they deserve. They're there because they deserve it. And they're evil. They don't don't have any value. Wow. And then I'm holding the hand of a man who has killed people. And I'm saying, the hands that were used to kill a person are now held in trust. And he's repented of his sin and trusted in Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? when we work out of the retribution principle, we're saying there is no redeemable quality about that person because of what they've done. There's nothing. There's nothing. But when we think like this, when we think out of the retribution principle, what are we saying about the image of God in a person? That the image of God in a person is determined by what a person does, not in the value that a person has from the creator who has made them. And that that will not change despite what they do. We've got to be careful. Sometimes we work out of the retribution principle. Because they don't, they don't, they deserve worse. And not only that, here's another point of application. What verses one through five teaches is this. We love to try and justify our own sin. We love to try and justify our own sin, right? Well, I'm not as bad as them. I'm not as bad as those Galileans and those Jerusalemites. 
We work on this. Uh, here's the way I, I've defined it. We work on comparative holiness. Comparative holiness. I'm pretty holy compared to this guy right here. I look pretty good compared to this guy right here. That's called comparative holiness. When we're comparing ourselves to somebody else and saying, I look pretty good standing next to them. Here's what. You may look pretty good and you may look pretty holy standing next to the person sitting next to you. But guess who you don't look very holy next to? Jesus. You may look pretty good standing next to your neighbor, standing next to the to the the people on TV or something. But here's the question. Put yourself next to Jesus. Then see how holy you are. You know, comparative holiness. That's not how God works. God calls us to be holy compared to no one else on this earth. I want to make sure that I say this, because I've been saying repentance a lot. I don't want to act like people in here know what repentance is. Repentance is, is turning away from our current way of life that is entrenched in sin and rebellion. It's turning towards Jesus. If you're, if you're a kid, I, I, I want to make it real simple. And you know what? Maybe even the, maybe even the adults in here need to be, hear it real simple. Is this. If you're a kid, say it over with me. Repentance is this. Turning away from sin, turning to Jesus. Turning away from sin, turning to Jesus. Turning away from sin, turning to Jesus. That's repentance. What is it turning away from? Turning to? Turning away from? Turning to? Man, I think this is even for y'all too, adults. Huh? Simplify, right? Oversimplify. Repentance is turning away from sin and turning to Jesus. Turning away from sin, turning to Jesus. Okay? This is what it is. Sam Storm says it really well. True Christian repentance involves a heartfelt conviction of sin, a contrition over the offense to God, a turning away from the sinful way of life, and a turning towards a God-honoring way of life. This is what repentance is. And repentance is not just an isolated event. I think people may think that, like, oh, I do that once. I, you know, maybe I went to confession. I did that one time. I got that all over with. I got that sweep clean. You know, I got all the sins out in one week and confessed them all. That's not how repentance works. Martin Luther says it the best. He says this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentant. You know what that means? That means every day we are to be repentant, living in repentance. Right? It's not a one-time event that you get over on Sunday morning. Well, I clean the sweep clean for the whole life. Every day is a day for repentance. So let me just ask you this question. Are you daily confessing your sin? Are you daily turning away from sin or turning into sin? Answer that question one more time. So are you daily turning away from sin or turning more into sin? This is what repentance is. Turning away from sin, having a heartfelt brokenness over it, and turning to Jesus. This is what it is. And so this is what Jesus is trying to get out of this, this story and this, th- these things that are being brought to him, these tragedies, is that they're meant to draw people to repent and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus goes on a little bit further to basically reinforce his point, and he tells a story, a parable. This is verses 6 through 9. This is the second point. We see a second characteristic, not just God's justice in the story. We see God's patience, God's undeserved patience. Here's a really simple statement for you that you probably already believe and know, but we need to hear it over and over again. God is patient towards sinners. We all know 
parents, you know, you use some of these uh, parabolic stories with kids to teach them life lessons, right? The boy who cried wolf, right? Anybody heard that as a kid? You use the boy who cried wolf to tell kids, don't lie or a wolf will eat you. Hey, fear works on a kid. I mean, like, it gets you. But we use those kind of parabolic stories to teach kids, keep, teach kids messages. And Jesus do the, does a very similar thing, with the, particularly with the fig tree story. The fig tree story happens all over the Gospels, and he's using it as a, a parable to teach us a message about something. So look at this in verses 16 on. Is that he's going to use this story about a fig tree and about bearing fruit and things like that. And this is a common Old Testament, Old Testament symbol. Particularly, the fig tree is a symbol for Israel. And it's not always used as a good symbol. It's actually most of the time used as a bad symbol, a negative symbol, symbol for their disobedience. If you want to go ahead and write down in your Bible or in your notebook, I don't want to tell you to write in your Bible, though it's a good thing. Uh, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. I want you to go and read that maybe this afternoon. Is that... This is a parable about God planting a vineyard, and it yielded wild grapes. And so he basically had to destroy and devastate it because it did not produce what he wanted. And so Jesus is alluding to that fig tree story from the Old Testament. He's reusing it to basically teach us a point about himself. And so he's using this parable of a fig tree, that there was a man who he planted a fig tree in a vineyard, and he went to seek fruit, and there was no fruit. He went three years, never found any fruit there. So he's like, man, cut it down. It's useless. It's a waste of time and energy. But the vine dresser said, no, 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 no. Let's just wait. Let's give it another year. I'll, I'll put some manure around it. I'll dig and cultivate it. And, and guess what? If after a year, if it bears fruit, great. If it doesn't, we'll cut it down. That he, he's basically imploring him, like, get, let's be patient just for one more year. Let's be patient for one more year. And so it's a beautiful parable because showing a really big key aspect that we might just glance over. God is patient in our unrepentance. God is very patient. Right? He's very patient. Rather than judging us instantly for our unrepentance, is that he is patient with us in our unrepentance. That he doesn't just cut us down the moment we respond in unrepentance. gives every opportunity for us to repent and bear fruit. And so the question for the crowd is not why did these tragedies happen? It should be why hasn't these tragedies happened to me yet? Why hasn't these tragedies happened to me yet? And and the answer should be because God has been patient with me to give me opportune and ample reason tragedies, life-threatening tragedy happen, is because he's very, very patient with us. Take the absence of life-threatening tragedy as a sign of God's patience. God is very patient. Do you, do you ever just sit and dwell on that attribute of God? God's patience? Who needed it? I, I don't dwell on that much. But God is extremely patient with us. Let me just read a couple of scriptures for you so that you can get the taste and the flavor of the Bible on this. Romans 2, 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, 
not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? Repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 1 Timothy 1, 16 through 17. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as, as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, and only God be honor, glory, and praise. Amen. God is extremely patient with us. And his patience with us should incite in us a desire to repent of our sins and to bear fruit with repentance. The scriptures present God as a, a very patient father with a disobedient child. I don't know if you've ever had a disobedient child. If not, man, you can tell me what it's like. But the scriptures present God as a very, very patient father who, despite having a disobedient child, who denies his urges, who, who, who basically presses back against him all the time, is that there is still this God who is a father who continues to reach out in love and pursuit of a, of a child who is disobedient all the time. That's what the scriptures present God as, a God who is very patient with us, who continually pursues, who continually loves, who continually cares, continually reaches out to the disobedient child despite their continual disinterest and denial. And so the warning for us as we read this, you hear about this fig tree not producing fruit, is this, is that through repentance, if we truly turn away from sin and turn to Jesus, it will have effects in our life where we bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what John the Baptist said earlier in Luke's Gospel in 3, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Paul said the same thing in Acts 26, 20, that you are to repent and basically deeds are to flow from that. Is that if we truly have repented from our sins, we've truly turned away from sin and turned to Jesus, it will bear its, the fruit of that in our own life. It will bear that fruit. The life of repentance is marked by fruitful living, born out of a life that has been transformed by Jesus Christ. Have you, has true repentance occurred in your life? Has there been that radical redirection towards Jesus? Does your life bear the effects that repentance has occurred? Here's an application for us. God is patient. Reflect on this truth. And I want to challenge you this week. Can I give you a challenge this week? I want to challenge you this week. I, I challenge you this week to recall times when God was clearly and evidently and incredibly patient with you despite your utter futility. And maybe the rest of the time he's abundantly patient. I want to challenge you that. Reflect on that truth. That God was incredibly patient with you. Because this is the God of the scriptures. The scriptures paint a picture of a God who's not just wrathful and punishing towards sin, but a God who is gracious and long-suffering and patient towards sin. And let me, let me take another step in the direction of patience for us. Is patience is a problem for us. You know, we hear the phrase, I don't have any patience with stupid people. You hear that phrase? And guess what? That's the theme of the Bible. There's a God who is patient with a bunch of stupid people. And so when we say, I don't have patience with stupid people, you don't know the theme of the Bible. 
because it is a story. It's, you want patience with stupid people? Read the book of Kings. Read the book of Kings. The guys who were supposed to be really smart and really godly are stupid. And so this is the story of the Bible. So you think, I don't have patience with stupid. Boom. To think if God treated us that way. To think if God applied the same amount of patience to us that we apply to other people. But praise God, he does not. Right? He is very patient with utterly stupid people like Wesley Snipes. But let me just give a warning to you. Don't mistake God's patience as carelessness or apathy towards others. Don't mistake patience for apathy. God cares deeply and is greatly concerned about our sin and takes it very seriously. But he is also abounding in patience and steadfast love. If you want to know more about this, read Exodus 34, 6 through 7. He's, he's gracious and compassionate and kind, abounding in steadfast love for generations. But he will by no means clear the guilty. God's patience, God's graciousness, but God's justice on display in Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Don't mistake God's patience for carelessness. Let me bring it to a close. The story of the fig tree in verse 9 ends open-ended. What happens to the fig tree? Jesus doesn't tell us. What happens to the fig tree? Does it get cut down or does it bear fruit? What happens? It's a cliffhanger, right? cliffhanger it's like our best show and it just cuts off and that can't be the way season 22 ends can't be jesus ends on a cliffhanger and i think the reason jesus ends on the cliffhanger is this he's basically saying you tell me you tell me my fig tree what do you do with it he's basically saying you are the fig tree what's going to happen are you going to bear fruit in keeping with repentance or are you going to continue to rebel against me in your foolishness and find yourself destroying the fig tree? What's going to happen? I'm going to leave you like Jesus left you. What are you going to do now that Jesus has urged and commanded you to repentance and to bear fruit in repentance? What are you going to do? Jesus has been very clear. So the story of the gospel, here, I'll go ahead and give you a teaser for the next six to eight weeks. There's a God who has created all things, and he is holy, good, and just. And he has created man to worship and love and obey him. Man, us, we did not. We were those disobedient children who denied and was disinterested in him. And that is called sin. And because of our sin, we deserve God's punishment and wrath and justice for that. But God is gracious and patient and compassionate towards us. And that he sends his son, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, to bear our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, and one day be made new perfectly without sin. That's the story of the Bible. That's the story of the gospel. This morning, I want to urge you, if you are in a state of unrepentance, don't leave this morning. This morning, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to urge you even this. If right now you feel that God is prodding your heart to come and repent, I'm going to be standing right here in front of this table right after the service. After saying this, saying this message, I'm going to be standing right here. I'll be wearing this face right here. I'll look the same. I won't change, I promise. I'll have a mask on, but yeah. I'll be standing right here in front of this table. Don't leave without coming to me and saying, I want to talk to you about Jesus and how he has called all things to repentance and to lead you to him. Standing right here, I would love to speak with you.
stupid, stubborn sinner. That is the good news for us. That if we didn't have the faith of God, who would lead us? Father, I pray right now that all of the Christian, non-Christian, those watching on video, would feel the weight of you, God's message here tonight. Luke 13, 1 through 8. And not leave, not cut off the TV without repenting of their sins and trusting in Jesus. That they would realize that warning us of the coming impending day of God's judgment where all men will fall. God, we thank you that you are patient with us even now. And it's through Jesus Christ we can hope of eternal hope with you. Let us live in the midst of that hope. We love you and praise you. Let's stand and let's sing real loud, praising God for his perfect patience.